I'm glad you're here. I hope you got a copy of God's Word with you, and you'll open it tonight to the 11th chapter of Genesis. And we're going to begin in the life of Abraham. It was a Tuesday evening about 8.30 on April the 26th, 2005. Jennifer Wilbanks told her fiancé, I'm going out to run. And she said, I'll be back in 40 minutes. She took off. She went out to run. And an hour later, uh, John began to get worried. She wasn't back. That was unlike her. He took out looking for her, and he couldn't find her anywhere. By 1.30 in the morning, he called the police and reported Jennifer missing. Uh, They could not find her. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a nationwide search for Jennifer Wilbanks who went missing five days before her marriage. Uh, On that Sunday morning, the day that she was to be married to John, she called him and she said, I've been kidnapped by a man and a woman and I am somewhere. Well, the whole thing turned out to be untrue. She started in Duluth, Georgia, where they lived, and that night when she went to run, she kept walking and she kept running until she got to Las Vegas, and then when she got to Las Vegas, she took a turn, and she went down to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, all of the press, when this came out, gave her the title of Runaway Bride, and Richard Gere, that's a bad taste to say that, and whatever that gal's name is made a movie uh, called The Runaway Bride. Well, You've got a runaway man. Well, he really walks away uh, from his home and everything that he's ever known. I doubt it was anything like runaway bride when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, but it was pretty significant. One of the most significant events in all of human history, uh, when this guy, his name is Abram, you're introduced to him in the 11th uh, chapter of the book of Genesis, when he walks away uh, from his home in Ur of the Chaldees, unlike Jennifer Wilbanks, who goes back to Duluth, Georgia, he never goes back to Ur, which is a great picture of eternal salvation that when you walk away from this old fleshly life, you never go back. So, That's where we're going to start with Abraham, and for the next coming months, we're going to spend time looking at this guy who's called the father of all the faithful. Now, that's what he's called. He's called the father of all the faithful. You think about this. The Word of God calls him the friend of God, which is pretty significant. And then you come to the fact that Jews look back to him, Christians look back to him, and Muslims look back to him. The three great monotheistic religions today all point back to Abraham. Now, if that's not enough um, uh, to hook us into looking at the life of Abraham, you need to remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1 and verse 2, when Isaiah the prophet says, look back to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. If you're ever going to understand the New Testament, if you're ever going to begin to understand the rest of the Bible from Genesis forward, 
what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get down this whole thing right here of Abraham, especially week after next when we come to chapter 12 and we begin to look in chapter 12 at what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. Now, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to briefly give you just a look at Abraham and the world that he came out of. So you have to start literally in the context of the chapter, the chapter context. Dr. Chesney shared with you last week about the Tower of Babel. I'm just going to go back and point at that. It's all kind of fascinating that that chapter starts with a place called Babel. Now, that word is forever linked in all, listen, in all of history with the confusion of speaking different languages. It's kind of interesting that there, when God comes down, he says, I'm going to go down, and he says, I'm going to separate them by giving different languages, how they were all united under one language, and then all of them began to speak a different language, and they dispersed in confusion, which is the exact opposite of what happens in Acts on the day of Pentecost where they all are separated by languages, the Holy Spirit comes down, and these apostles speak in their own, listen, you have to go back and look at the chapter, they speak in their own tongue, but they are heard by everybody in his own language, and what happens there is a supernatural uniting of all of these people. So it's kind of the opposite thing happening from the Tower of Babel all the way to Pentecost. Now, the background for Abraham comes out of this. And if you're there in the 11th chapter and you look at verse 4, there's an interesting statement there that has always fascinated me. They're building this tower and it says, whose top will reach into heaven. There are some Old Testament commentators who say that that Hebrew should be translated, whose top resembles the heavens or is a uh, reflection of the heavens. And what they believe is this, these Chaldeans uh, that where Abraham comes out of, who would have been there at the Tower of Babel, uh, they were astrologers, and it seems as if they were already dividing up the sky into what we know to be the zodiac. And so they were worshiping what they saw there. Now that's going to be true of Ur, it's going to be true of Abraham. Abraham was a moon-worshiping pagan. And you come back to where does all that come from? It comes right here. And so uh, they're worshiping the heavens. They're worshiping the sun. They're worshiping the moon. They're worshiping the stars. And uh, they are simply just these moon-worshiping pagans. Um, Also, at Uh, the Tower of Babel, you've got this guy by the name of Nimrod. Now, if you do a little bit of research, what you'll discover is this, is that legend says he had a wife whose name was Semiramis, Semiramis I. She becomes the high priestess of the cult there at the Tower of Babel. What they had done was essentially this. They were humanist, and they were saying, we don't want anything to do with God We're going to build our own culture, our own society. We're going to live life our own way. And this woman, Semiramis, the wife of Nimrod, becomes the high priestess 
of a certain cult. Now, I want you to watch this because it links back to Genesis 3, and it, and it comes all the way up into our day. Do you remember, let me just give you a reminder in Genesis 3, where God looks at the serpent and he says to the serpent, let me tell you, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So Satan there, the serpent there, understands that there is going to be a child that will come from a woman in a supernatural way that is going to be his destruction. So Satan begins to do what? He begins to sow this thought into the mind so as to confuse people. Now let me tell you something. He takes a little bit of what is scriptural truth. Every cult does that. Every heresy does that. They'll take something that comes out of Scripture and distort it in such a way that it sounds biblical to a degree, but they come out with a wrong conclusion. Semiramis I was said to have had a baby supernaturally. Remember what God told Satan? Anybody that reads that understands woman has no seed. This had to be some kind of supernatural birth that would be taking place. So Satan sows that idea into the mind of fallen man who wants to reject the word of God and go his own way. And so in order to lead them into deception that they can save themselves, uh, here is this idea that Semiramis has a child uh, that is a miraculous birth and you have born what is called the mother-child cult. Now watch this. It goes to every major civilization. You get to the ancient Egyptians and you've got Isis, and I can't for the life of me remember, for some reason my mind's going blank, who her child was. Isis, who is the goddess, and she supernaturally has a child who is going to save. You move to the ancient Greeks, and the ancient Greeks in their mythology had Aphrodite, whose son was Eros. You go to the Romans, and the Romans had as their goddess Venus, whose child was Cupid. And so you follow that all through these ancient civilizations, and there is a deception that Satan has planted in the midst of human history to deceive people to think, well, this sounds like what God says. So it must be this is the way we're saying. All the way down till you come to these movements now, the sacred feminine, you, have you heard that? Um, and, uh, you, you get to these genderless Bibles, and I won't go there because I don't, wanna, I don't want my blood pressure to start working up. But you begin to get in all this, this concept, even down to our day, the, the cult of Sophia that has risen up in the ecumenical church well, there, there you have it. I'm just giving you the background. All of this is background for where you're going to find this guy called Abraham. When God calls him, God calls him like he calls every one of us, and that is God calls us, and God's call is comprehensive. Now, when you come to Abraham, that's going to be the big thing that you need to remember. God calls him and God's call on our life is comprehensive. 
I had no idea that when I finished early this morning what, I was, what I'm going to preach Sunday morning and what I was doing tonight that there would be a connection. But I'm going to talk to you about God's call on our lives uh, this coming Sunday morning. You see it right here with Abraham. When God calls him, first of all, God calls us familially. That is, God calls us in the midst of our families. Now, I realize that some people are single and they, they say, well, you know, I don't have a husband, I don't have a wife, so that doesn't apply to me. Well, you didn't just appear. You have a family. Um, and God calls us in the midst of our family. And I want you to see that because that's so critical when it comes uh, to Abraham, that God calls him as a family. God has a reason. He has a father. His, father name, his father's name is Terah, not terror, but Terah. Uh, it would be awful to have a father by the name of Terah, wouldn't it? Uh, but Terah is his father. He has a brother, Haran. He has a brother, Nahor. He has a wife, Sarai, at this point. At this point, his name is Abram, right here. You know the whole family there. Uh, they were a major family in Ur, which is the capital of this whole area. They would have been like, um, they were extremely wealthy. We know that Abraham was wealthy. Haran was wealthy because we're told that Lot inherited all of this stuff from his father Haran. Nahor becomes wealthy. You get over to the 24th chapter of Genesis and you're going to read somewhat of that. And so this was a family who was very influential in this city of Ur, in this place where the Chaldeans lived, in this whole area. They would have been something maybe like the, uh, the, a, a dynasty like the Kennedys or something like that. Everybody would have known them. Uh, these folks had a great deal. They were wealthy. They were affluent. Um, uh, they were well-known. They were well-established. You've got this whole family that is here. Uh, but they were all pagans. They were all moon-worshiping pagans. And in fact, if you've got your Bible, put your finger there in Genesis chapter 11. If you'll look over to Joshua chapter 24, to the last chapter of the great book of Joshua. And you're going to read something there that Joshua says uh, just before he uh, dies to all of Israel. They're in the land now. And Joshua said to all the people in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served, now watch this, other, plural, gods. Joshua knows about this. Everybody knows the history of, um, of Abraham, that he was an idolater, that he was a pagan. And yet here in the mercy of God, God is going to call him. God's going to call him for his own purpose He's going to place his blessing on him. He's going to give him his grace in the midst of his pagan life. Now, you say, how in the world did God do this? Okay, well, uh, keep your finger there in Genesis chapter 11 and go with me over to Acts chapter 7. Because in Acts chapter 7, you've got a deacon who is being stoned. And it, boy, it really... It really disperses the church. There's nothing like a deacon killing to set the church 
kind of on fire. Well, they're about to stone Stephen. And before they stone Stephen, he gives a history of Israel. It's, it's a remarkable cha chapter, the seventh chapter of Acts. And um, as he begins to give the history of Israel, watch it what he says in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 2. He said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now remember that. You've gotten the whole thing right there. God appeared to him. Somehow, some way, God in his goodness, in his grace, appeared to Abram in, in Ur, in Mesopotamia, before he got to Haran, and he called him to follow him. Now, that's all we really know about it. You see a little bit of it in chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. Uh, that's all that he told him to do. I want you to go forth from where you are. Leave your home. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments. But that's the grace of God. The grace of God came and called Abram in the midst of his paganism. God is going to come back and he's going to call the only son, or really, well, the only son that Abraham and Sarah had, Isaac. He's going to call Isaac. Now, there's something being said in all of this. Then he's going to come back and he's going to call Jacob. So you get the call of Abraham, you get the call of Isaac, you get the call of Jacob. Here is the call of God on this family. When God calls us, he calls us familially. He calls us in the midst of our family. And so the call is going to come to Abraham. It's going to get because God is wanting to do something with the family. Now, do you know where I get that from? Well, watch. Go back to chapter 12 of Genesis and look at the end of verse 3 where God says to Abraham, and in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, can I just show you what's going to happen here? You're there in chapter 12. Look over to chapter 14 of Genesis and look down at verse 13, and you'll see what God is beginning to do. He's going to start with Abraham and Abraham's family, and he's going to create something new in the earth Genesis 14, verse 13, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. First time you ever see that. First time you see the word right there. Uh, do you know what Hebrew means? And I don't even have this in my note. I'm going back uh, to memory banks here. The whole concept of the word Hebrew is this concept of over. Am I right? <laughs> you remember your Hebrew? I'm, I'm struggling here. Uh, help your daddy-in-law, son. Um, uh, to cross over, to go over. It goes, it goes back to the whole concept that God has called Abraham to go over, to cross over, to come over. And he's doing that in his family with his family for the purpose that through him one day, now here's the end goal, is that out of this call on this pagan here in Ur of the Chaldees, you're going to end up with the Messiah in Bethlehem. 
one night. You see, that's where we're headed. God has started it back here, right here with Abraham. In 1577, there was a young man by the name of Hans Brett who was 21 years old. He wasn't married, didn't have any children because he was caring. His dad had, had died, and he was caring for his widowed mother and the younger siblings. He stepped into the family business. He was a baker. Uh, at this time, they had left England, and they were living in Belgium, what we know as Belgium. Uh, and um, there, he would finish up his work in the afternoons. And this young, 21-year-old young man, so committed to Jesus Christ, an Anabaptist would go out in the afternoons and would preach the gospel. And that's what he believed God had called him to do. He would work through the day and late in the afternoon. When his work was finished, he would go out and he would stand and preach in a field or he would go to somebody's house or he'd go to somebody's barn or he'd go anywhere he could and there he would preach the gospel and he was extremely effective because people were going to hear Hans Brett preach the gospel and many of them were leaving uh, the Lutheran church or the Catholic church and they were coming over into the Anabaptists. They arrested him. And as they arrested him, they took him to the castle at Antwerp and they put him there in prison. And every day they would torture him. They did this for months in an effort to get him to recant from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now these were, these were Catholics and Lutherans doing this to get him from preaching, to keep him from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wouldn't do it. They got so exasperated with him, then they took him to the dungeon. And for several more weeks in the dungeon, they increased their torture of the young man's life, but he would not recant from what he was doing. Till eventually they took him before a judge. And the judge gave him an opportunity to recant, and he stood up and he started preaching the gospel in front of the judge, to the judge. So that the judge said, we, we will burn you at the stake. So the morning they came for Hans Brett, 21 years old, they came for Hans Brett to take him to the stake to burn him. They knew he would do this, that all the way from that dungeon to the stake, and as long as he could, while he was burning, he would preach the gospel. So they brought something that in that day was part of their torture. It was called a tongue screw. And what they did was they had a piece of metal that would go on top of your tongue and a piece of metal that would go under your tongue and a place where they would then take a screw and drive a screw down through your tongue. And if that was not enough, they took a hot poker and they touched it to the tip of his tongue so that his tongue would swell so that there was no possibility that Hans Brett could in any way preach the gospel while he was on his way to his death. He had a friend there that day. His name, his friend's name was Hans as well. He was a lot of Hans in those days. Uh, Hans um, Derise. Hans Derise was standing there in the crowd that day and watched his friend burn to death. He was under conviction about God's call on his life. 
In fact, he was in the Lutheran church and was dissatisfied with the Lutheran church and was going to make a change. He was going to answer the call to preach, and he too would become an Anabaptist. Do you know the average lifespan of an Anabaptist? 18 months. 18 months. That's why we have so very little uh, from the Anabaptists is because they killed them. Uh, the one thing that the Catholics and the Protestants could agree on, kill the Anabaptists. So that's your forefathers, by the way. Anyway, when the ashes cooled down from the fire and the crowd had left, Hans de Rys went over and picked through the ashes, and the only thing that was left was that tongue screw. He picked up that tongue screw, and he kept it. He surrendered his life to preach he left the Lutheran church and he became an Anabaptist and he kept that tongue screw to remind him of the commitment that his friend had to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know the Darius family still exists? And from generation to generation to generation for 442 years, they have passed that tongue screw down told the story to the next generation. And it has had an impact on every generation of that family. God called Abram in his family. In the context of his family, I wish I could get every young man that walks into the doors of this church to listen to this and to hear what that means, because God came to Abram and said, if you will follow me, if you will give yourself to me, I will not only impact your life, but I will see to it that your life will impact the life of your family. Now, I'm going to show you that. Watch this. You want to see this in the text? We read past it. Uh, we're not careful enough to pick it up, and we read right past it. Chapter 11 of Genesis, look at verse 31. Who did God call in Ur? Tell me. Oh, come on, I've been preaching it. Abraham. Abram. He called Abram. Look at verse 31. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur the Chaldees to enter into the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran, and they settled there. Confound it. It looks like this was Terah's idea all along, doesn't it? Do you know why? Because here is a son who had an impact on his father. So that when this boy said to his dad, God has called me to do this, it looks as if God had called the father to do it. Why? Because God said to Abram, if you will follow me, I will so impact your life that your life will impact the life of your family. God doesn't call you in a vacuum. God calls you in the, in, in the context of your family. Part of the call of God on your life is that inclusive. It includes that as well. 
All right, let me give you the second thing. Look at the second thing. When he calls us, he calls us personally. Well, he calls Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 1, you read this. The Lord said to Abram. That's who he calls. He's calling this man, and he calls him now, not just in the context of his family, but he calls him now in the context of his life, where he lives. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees. Um, and you begin to think about that, and you think, well, you know, what is that? They, they were just primitive people, and they lived like cavemen, and, you know, none of, none of that is applicable to us today. Listen, let me tell you something about Ur, and let me tell you something about uh, Abraham. And, and folks, I said this, um, I, I didn't say it Sunday, I, I said it in the uh, thing that's on the YouTube. We think we're the smartest generation that ever lived. Uh, because we've been able to go to the moon and we've made cell phones. Um, and, and so we are, we are the smartest people that ever have existed. Well, um, let me tell you, these people were brilliant people. They were mathematicians. <laughs> they were um, engineers. They were chemists. They were astrologers. Uh, these were people who were highly educated, er was a great center of all kind of trade and all kind of learning. Uh, I've actually, in uh, Dr. Ryrie's files, Dr. Ryrie actually had a piece of cuneiform writing that came from Mesopotamia. These people knew how to write. Do you know in Ur, they had a library that had at least 10,000 volumes in it? Do you know that British archaeologists, they used to think that Ur was a myth, that it didn't really exist, that the Old Testament, at the height of uh, uh, textual criticism in the 1800s and then on into the 1900s, they, they look at Scripture and they say, well, it's just literature and it's not real and these are just stories that were dreamed up and written down. Listen, they came, the British, out of the British Museum in the mid-1800s, uncovered what was the ancient city of Ur. You know what they uncovered about that library? They uncovered what they believed to be is library cards. They had a way of knowing who checked what out. You think they lived like cavemen. Do you know it was the Chaldeans who created the whole concept of a brick? They lived in two-story brick homes. They didn't live in caves. They didn't live like a bunch of animals. These were educated people. This was part of the Fertile Crescent. Through there came silks out of Mongolia and China. Out of India came all kind of spices. They dug and mined their things like malachite and pyrite. They had things like lapis lazuli, diamonds, rubies. They had, the, they had ivory that came out of Africa, that came across North Africa, up through uh, what we know today, which is Israel, crossed that fertile crest. They had ivory out of Africa. They had every kind of wood imaginable, teak. These people were highly educated, highly disciplined, uh, somewhat well-read for that day and time. They were incredibly well-read, and they were incredibly wealthy and had some of the things that we consider to be extreme luxuries in our day. 
Now that's what he's being called out of. God's calling him out of that literally to go to Canaan, which has nothing like that. Can you imagine explaining that to your wife? Well, that's what he's going to have to do. Not only were, was this a progressive society, you know, Bernie Sanders would have loved this. He, it was a progressive society. But not only that, it was a, it was a, it was a sin-saturated, a uh, polytheistic-saturated society. They worshipped everything, all kind of gods. Um, they worshipped mainly the moon god. In the center of the city of Ur was a ziggurat that stood seven stories tall. It would have been like being in Washington, D.C., and no matter where you are in Washington, D.C., you look up and you can see the Washington Monument, or being in Paris, no matter where you are in Paris, you look up, you can see the Eiffel Tower. That ziggurat was the temple of Nanar, who was the moon god. That was their chief god. They worshiped the sun, they worshiped the stars, but their chief god was Nanar or Nana. Y'all thought Nana was the grandmama. Nana was the moon god for the Chaldeans. And that's what they primarily worshiped. That's what Abraham was. That's what his dad was. That's what his entire family was. That's what Sarai was. They were moon-worshiping pagans. Let me just throw something in here for you, for those of y'all that are still awake and you're listening to me. Listen, let me throw something in. That moon god was being worshipped in southern Arabia and was being worshipped there in the 600s A.D., 600 years after Christ, when a man went there with the desire to unite all of the Arab tribes, and he had watched Judaism, and he had watched Christianity, and he knew that the one thing the Arabs needed was was a monotheistic religion, one God, and he chose a God that they were worshiping in southern Arabia that came down from Ur, and the name of that God was not Nanar, like it was in Chaldea, in southern Arabia, the name of that God was Allah. Now look, I just, that's free. Y'all didn't pay for one bit of that. I just gave that to you out of, out of all that. Well, that's what they are. That's, that's what they worship. And so you've got him and you've got uh, all of his family and they're there and that's what's going on with them. And God comes in the midst of that. It's in the midst of that wealth, in the midst of their family being well-known, in the midst of all of this religious belief. God comes in the midst of that and calls Abraham. Now, I've got three things I want you to think about when, when I tell you that. When I come to you and say that the Lord said to Abram, when he calls Abram, you stop and you have to think he's asking Abraham to believe that there is only one true living God. That is, when he's got to go in and talk to his wife, Sarah, when he's got to go in and talk to his father and his brothers, he's going in to say everything that you have believed and worshipped all your life is wrong. There's only one God. And here's his name. Jehovah. The second thing about that is this. So you stop and think. He, he had to go tell them that. The second thing is this. 
The second thing is that when God called Abraham, there was no Abraham for Abraham to look back to. Abraham had no Moses to look back to. Abraham had no scripture, no scripture at all. Not one piece of scripture had been written at this time. He had no Moses to look back to. He had no Samuel to look back to. He had no David to look back to or no Isaiah. He had no Peter, no Paul, no anybody. He had no example of what it was to walk by faith. He had nobody that he could point to and say, you know, that's a man who walks in faithfulness and righteousness with the Lord. I need to be like that. He had not one single person he could look back to to do that. Which tells me a lot of people today come out of backgrounds where they have absolutely no faith heritage whatsoever. Let me tell you something. You don't have to have it to live a life that pleases God. Uh, The third thing is this, is when God called him, his testimony was simply this. God said to follow him. That was those, you remember the blind man from Sunday? What was his testimony? I was blind, now I see. Here's my testimony. I, I can't tell you anything, I don't know him. His name is Jesus, that's all I know. I know I was blind, now I see. When Abraham had to go in and sit down with Sarai, and say, honey, I I need for you to understand, God has appeared to me. And by the way, there's only one God. He's appeared to me, and he has said, we're to leave here. We got to leave here? Yes. Why? Well, I don't know. Well, where are we going to go? Well, I, I don't know. Well, how long do you think it'll take for us to get there? I don't know. Well, what are we going to do when we get there? I don't know. God didn't tell him any of that. We got to have blueprints drop down out of heaven, six lawyers and three bankers right here with us to tell us anything before we'll take a move to do anything. Will will we not? Is that not right? Yes, it is. I'll answer it for us. And here God comes to him and says, I want you to just uproot yourself and follow me. I'll show you where I want you to go. Well, I can't do that. We've got to have more information than that. We've We can't possibly do that. What are you asking me to do? Walk by faith? Well, there's Abraham. God calls him in the midst of that. The last thing I want you to see is this, is that when God calls us, he calls us to obedience totally. Now, what in the world are we going to do with old Abraham? That's the whole rest of the story (laughs) Uh, with Abraham. When God calls us, He calls us to walk in obedience totally, completely. Now watch what he says. I'm going into verse 12, into chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. Do you know what that is? From your lifestyle. I'm asking you to put down your lifestyle, whatever your lifestyle is, and you walk away from it. Now, you know, I hate to use myself as illustration, but I want to tell you something. I did that this past year. I I laid down 20 years of megachurch pastoring. I laid that down after agonizing and praying and thinking, and I came to desperate moments when I thought, I can't do this. And I laid that down, and I've come to discover you can lay down 
all that other stuff and follow God where God wants you to go. The second thing he said is this, I want you to leave your relatives. Do you know what that is? That's your spiritual background. Who do you think taught him to be a moon-worshiping pagan? His mom and his daddy. They shaped him. They molded him. He says, I want you to leave your relatives. All of those who've influenced you to worship all of these pagan gods, you've got to walk away from that. He didn't say you've got to turn on your parents, you've got to disrespect your parents. Listen, I can take you to the New Testament and show you where Jesus said that's not absolutely not what you do. You honor. God's Word tells it. You honor your mom and dad. But he says, I want you out from under that influence if that's what their influence is going to be. The third thing was this. He says, your father's house. Now, that's personal. What is your father's house? It's my flesh. It's where I'm most comfortable. It's where I'm most at home. He says, I want you to walk away from where you are most comfortable. I want you to walk away from from your comfort zone. I want you to get out of that. God comes to him and he calls him. Listen, he says, what I want is I want your obedience totally, completely. Do you know what happens? He doesn't do it. He does a lot of it. He's human. He's just like us. He's going to get in the land. We'll get there. He gets in the land. What happens as soon as he gets there? He bolts out of it. He gets out of Canaan and goes down to Egypt. He gets into Egypt and starts lying about his wife. But we'll get there. The good thing is this. I like O Abraham because Abraham's just like me. In that God calls me to be obedient completely and totally, and I get out of his will. And you know what? God brings me back to where I need to be. You're going to see that Sunday. When I, I'm going to preach out of Jonah. I'll just tell you Sunday morning. I can't get it out of my head and off my mind. I know y'all have been studying in Sunday school. I'm going to come back and reinforce it. But let me tell you something. You get out as a child of God. You get out of God's will. Abraham is going to do that. And do you know what God does? He wears you out. That's what he does. Whom he loves, he beats the tar out of. He will do it. Abraham's going to learn it. We've got to learn it. The bottom line is this. We're supposed to be wholly, totally committed to the call of God on our lives. Just bow your heads with me. Now, I don't know who, who all is in here tonight and where you are personally and spiritually in your own life. But if you're here this evening, and I'm talking about trusting and putting your faith in God wholly and completely, you can't do that apart from Jesus Christ. And that's what God is doing right here in Abraham's life. He's setting aside a people that through those people, he is going to bring about the birth of his Messiah, his son. He's going to send his son. And he sends his son for this reason, to die for our sins. We're on this side of the cross. 
Abraham was on that side. Abraham knew much less about it than we do. We're far better theologians than Abraham ever was. We have far more information about God's salvation and God's purpose and God's plan for our lives than Abraham ever did. That's why I think they call him the father of all the faithful. He was faithful. He was human, yes. Did he fail? Yes. But he was still faithful to follow God. Maybe you've never done that. And God's speaking to your heart tonight. At the end of this prayer, you catch me, you catch one of the pastors here at the church, we'll be glad to share with you how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. But for the majority of us here in February on a Wednesday night, this is where we just need to ask ourselves, am I willing, like Abraham, to follow God and to answer his call and to realize that when God calls me, he calls all of me. He calls all of me. And he's called me to be obedient. Father, thank you for Abraham. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship and the time we can have together. And, and Father, gather around and learn and grow as a body together. Bless our church. Bless this fellowship. And Lord, as we head into this Sunday of world reach and a lot of those who are our partners from around the world and around the country will be here with us. I pray, Father, it would be a time of our drawing even closer to you and even closer to one another as we, as we think and pray and hear and encourage and watch and learn all the things that you're about in so many places. Uh, may this coming week, Father, just be a good week for Valleydale. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.